Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, folks. On this edition, another Earth Day edition of Compound Interests, I am once again talking to people over at ABML, American Battery and Metals, about uh, how they procure, how they demanufacture used batteries and turn that lithium into usable lithium once again, more or less keeping that going over and over and over again. I think you'll really enjoy the discussion with Ryan Melsert, who came over to ABML from Tesla and now is one of the folks helping supply that gigafactory with lithium and these other metals. I think you'll really enjoy the discussion. And again, Earth Day, the 22nd of April, Think Green. Thank you for watching and listening. Hi, John. Great to be here. Well, I've seen you speak so eloquently about batteries and about extraction or remanufacturing um, uh, of a battery from something that's used up to something that can once again uh, be used to power uh, cell phones, automobiles, whatever it might be. Would you mind giving folks just a little bit on your background, Ryan, as far as how you got to ABML? Yes, of course. Uh, my background is really in, you know, chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, thermal systems design. Even back um, about 10 years ago, I was working at a renewable energy research institute in North Carolina. And it was a great platform where it was really agnostic to which type of renewable energy technology was developed. But the platform really enabled fundamental design at the whiteboarding level. Uh, development laboratories, we built very small scale samples of systems, bigger piloting space, and then very large demonstration scale projects where we had this big 30,000 square feet, 70 foot tall bay, we would build these you know, pre-commercial systems. And within that infrastructure, I was fortunate enough to win a handful of government and private industry uh, grants and awards there. And one of them was for new methods of extracting lithium from wastewater and geothermal brines, specifically within the US. So that was a two-year project that was able to bring on some partners and was specifically engineering and synthesizing these new types of selective absorbents to extract lithium. And the type of geothermal resource I was looking at was actually in Northern Nevada. So I was there and then in early 2015, you know, I had always been following Tesla as a company, you know, it was very early stages back then and then discussions with many employees. They reached out in early 2015, really because this battery gigafactory outside of Reno had been announced, but it really hadn't even gone through a formal groundbreaking yet. You know, it was really just an idea, just a patch of dirt. And the company itself had hired a very large outside engineering firm to build the gigafactory. And they came back with a very safe but standard design for a factory and said, here's how we can go forward. And the Tesla leadership looked at it and hated it. They said, this is too conventional. This is too safe. This is just, you know, kind of cookie cutter. And they said, instead, we're going to license ourselves as our own general contractor. We're going to build our own EPC and engineering procurement construction team in-house. And we're going to design this whole facility from the ground up. The building itself, the layout of equipment, 
the very large utility systems, the routing of instruments, absolutely everything. So there were you know, 10 to 15 of us brought on in that first wave back in the spring of 2015. We sat in one trailer out in the Nevada desert and started designing absolutely every aspect of the factory. So I did that for about two years and it really was the full life cycle. So again, design from a blank page, rigorous modeling of how these components could work together, working with vendors to have these very large components manufactured and delivered and installed, and then going through the commissioning process and really making them work what you know just months earlier was a design on the whiteboard. So it was a very empowering process to go through that. And for the cell manufacturing side, many people see these very large buildings, you know, gigafactories, extremely large, it's very tangible. But when you actually look at the specific manufacturing operations, what's received in those types of buildings are very refined powders and materials that are then assembled into cells. So going from powders to slurries, to coated electrodes, to dried systems, to press and cut electrodes, to rolls, to cells, to modules, to packs. That whole manufacturing supply chain happens in that one building. And being you know, shoulder deep in every step of that process for years really gave me and my team the very fundamental understanding of how batteries are manufactured, all the things that go right to manufacture a cell, and even more importantly, are all the ways it can go wrong. What are the physics-based mechanisms for how every stage of that manufacturing process can fail and not work correctly? So now years down the road, we're using all of those firsthand experiences in this lithium ion battery recycling system to essentially make these battery cells fall apart, to make them fail through all of the mechanisms we were trying to avoid during the manufacturing process for several years. Well, I mean, obviously what you just described, Ryan, would mean that you were like an insider in uh, exactly what it takes to assemble, like you say, from those powders to the slurries, um, to the actual assembly of that battery that for the Gigafactory, which is building those batteries for Tesla. Um, who better then to uh, when you ended up moving on over to American Battery and Mining, ABML, uh, which I know it's changing the name to, I think, American Battery and Technology Company or something like that. But ABML is still the stock symbol and so forth. Um, I am a significant investor in there. I've spoken with you before, um, sm spoken with Miss Sethi, uh, as well as uh, Doug Cole, the CEO. And I think that what you guys do over there at ABML is groundbreaking. And obviously you have competition, um, some of it domestic, but an awful lot of, uh, in, in particular, recycled batteries are coming out of China. But every... Uh, recycling is not equal, is it, in terms of the impact to the environment? And since we're coming up on Earth Day, the 22nd of April, I thought maybe you speaking to the differences between your closed system and how you guys are doing recycled lithium versus to, to get to that black mass, those powders and things as you described, to get into the Gigafactory, for instance, 
versus how China's doing it with brute force and heat and all of that. If you wouldn't mind explaining, I think the listeners would be uh, very uh, uh, surprised to hear how unclean uh, recycling can actually be. Exactly, yes. <clears throat> There's this misconception that you know recycling is inherently clean and mm -hmm. it really takes effort still to design a process that has low environmental impact, whether it's from virgin or recycled materials. So what I just described that reverse manufacturing process, you know, that's what I worked on my first two years at Tesla. And that really is how we take these very large packs and modules that are still electrically charged, how we're able to process them and how we separate and sort out the components. But then at the end, once you've sold many of those, you know, scrap metals, the copper, the aluminum, the steel, many types of mixed plastics, what's left over is this essentially, you know, a high solid slurry or filter cake, like you just mentioned, usually referred to as a black mass, contains large amounts of valuable metals and large amounts of very low value materials. So my, my third and fourth years at Tesla, again, after really getting the Gigafactory up and stable, I was able to move over into the R&D division and formed a new group within the R&D set and I ended up calling it the battery cell material processing group. So at Gigafactory, like I mentioned, you really do receive these refined cathode and anode powders into the building. You don't really get involved much upstream of that. And when you look at actually assembling the battery cell itself, only about one quarter of the total cost is the manufacturing. So with Gigafactory as an example, about three quarters of the cost of manufacturing a battery cell are spent really at the loading dock, you know, buying those highly refined materials to just come into the factory to then be assembled. So my third and fourth year in that group I formed in R&D division, I was able to go out and hire, you know, seven or eight R&D engineers, mostly PhD chemical and mechanical engineers. We were able to build our own wet chemistry development lab within the company. And instead of just buying those highly refined materials from the market, we started receiving raw ore samples, raw brines from different sites throughout the world. These were undeveloped mining sites where they had large amounts of lithium and cobalt and nickel bearing material. But to date, those elements weren't being harvested because the conventional mining community had determined that they weren't economical to extract from those resources. So we started receiving drums and barrels and dry sacks of these different types of unconventional materials, developing our own processes for how to extract those individual elements, new ways to then purify those extracted materials, and then actually synthesizing new active cathode materials and testing them in cells against what we were getting from our own supply chain. So now that we're looking at this recycled material, once we have essentially the scrap metal separated, that black mass concentrated, what remains is really an unconventional resource. So myself and, and many of my old team from Tesla who have come over to ABML over the past few years are now looking at that with a similar lens and saying this type of black mass is really just another type of unconventional resource that is bearing lithium and cobalt and nickel and manganese. 
So again, we have our own development laboratory. We've been trialing really first of kind processes for how to extract these elements from this type of black mass. And when you look at the emissions from these types of facilities, at the front end, if you use you know, a very high temperature smelting-based process, you're essentially burning and melting a battery pack up front that releases very large amounts of toxic air emissions, toxic water emissions. And these are not just greenhouse gases. These contain large amounts of sulfur and fluorine and phosphorus and heavy metals in particulate form. These are real toxic emissions. And by us doing this strategic demanufacturing process, we don't have any single operation on site that runs at high temperature. There's no combustion anywhere on site. So we avoid that entire set of emissions. And then on the back end process, when we're extracting one element at a time, many of the emissions there, you know, they're, they're called tier two emissions where it's really not at the plant itself, but traditionally very large amounts of chemical agents are used. Industrial acids and bases and oxidizers and solvents that are used to extract these metals. The process we put together is able to use dramatically lower amounts of those chemical agents, which reduces the total life cycle footprint of our process. So again, when you look at our system, it really is a night and day environmental input for the same amount of products coming out based on competing processes. Well, um, the DOE seems to have given you a big thumbs up on the process because the Department of Energy has given American Battery and Metals a $4.5 million grant to produce battery cathode lithium hydroxide. Um, and uh, even though, like I say, I'm sure you have domestic competitors for this, uh, it's nonetheless uh, really interesting that American Battery and Metals has been able to uh, do what you guys have done um, in this groundbreaking area of demanufacturing. I think I called it remanufacturing, but it's demanufacturing um, those batteries. And you also, um, as I addressed with your COO, you guys are getting paid uh, for that demanufacturing because you're getting those batteries from folks that are paying you to take them. Right, we, we did win that Department of Energy grant a few months ago. And like I said, that's a great differentiator for, you know, many companies can put out press releases or make statements or have PowerPoint decks. But Department of Energy really has internal experts and they bring in um, outside consultants to review these types of proposals. So it's, um, you know, we're very grateful to have received such a positive review from them and uh, to partner with our companies. So working with you know, DuPont Water Solutions and American Lithium. And that program again, has a order of magnitude reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and total pollutant emissions compared to conventional processes. And the lithium industry itself is very global, but the US really is one of the few countries that is not involved in it. So last year, less than 1%, of all lithium products made globally were made within the US. So we're, we're almost a non-player within the actual harvesting of these materials. So while we have large amounts of cell manufacturing and electric vehicle manufacturing, if we still have to import these battery metals, 
and we're importing them from areas where they were harvested in a high environmental impact process, it really negates many of the benefits of electric vehicles. So we're very fortunate that this type of process has much lower environmental impact, plus being a domestic source. We're able to make it at much lower cost with fewer transportation logistics costs without any types of tariffs when we sell these materials to domestic customers who are making this high energy density cathode material. Well, the um, uh, when I when I also when I spoke with um, Ms. Sethi, she was saying that uh, your COO, uh, she was saying that uh, the uh, amount of batteries, the the lead acid batteries. In other words, traditional car batteries, I'll call them, um, that are recycled is in the high 90% range. Whereas lithium batteries are maybe 5% globally of lithium, which is everything from cell phones, again, to Tesla and General Motors and everybody else who's using lithium to lithium ion batteries and so forth. Um, that's a pretty, you know, that gives you an idea of how far there is to go as far as those batteries, rather than dumping them into landfill, those lithium batteries to uh, bringing them to um, American battery and metals. Yes, and, and even outside of the battery industry for any type of recycling or circular economy theory, lead acid batteries are usually used as one of the perfect examples because they have such a high recovery rate today and because the recovery rate was so low uh, not too long ago. And it really is about the infrastructure throughout the whole cycle that enabled that. You know, part of it is charging the deposit when a person purchases a battery, how they're able to essentially swap that deposit when they buy a new battery at the same time, and how the recycling infrastructure is set up to make sure that every portion of that supply chain has an economic incentive. And when many people think of lithium-ion battery recycling, a lot of times they think of regulations or rules forcing people to recycle. I always see it as kind of the, the carrot and the stick approach. So many people focus on the stick, you know, punishing people who don't recycle. And that has had to happen to date because many recycling processes today aren't able to operate in a financially sustainable manner without having to be paid to take away material. So to have that type of tipping fee, that negative feedstock cost is required. And when you do that, it disincentivizes the return of material to the market. You know, people would rather hoard it or dispose of it illegally than have to pay to have it uh, processed responsibly. So instead of just that stick side, punishing people who don't do it, again, because of the type of process we've put together, while initially we will be getting paid to take this material, we can still operate with a sustainable margin, even if we aren't paid for feedstock. And eventually, as the process becomes even more refined, you know, we could be able to pay people to get the feedstock back into the market. And then you really reverse that paradigm. Then it's the carrot side. Then it's a market pull to take that material back into the market. So if you have an old cell phone or laptop in your dresser, you know, if you know you have to pay to get it handled responsibly, you may just leave it there and may just store it. But if you could get paid to return it, that has a pull and really makes people want to return material back into this market. 
Well, um, and I certainly applaud you and ABML for doing that because I think that's critical to uh, um, meeting the demand that is, you know, almost exponential. Again, we're we're back into that supply and demand, and if if demand is outstripping supply, prices have to be going uh, significantly higher. And uh, on the on the good hand, I guess uh, even though fossil fuel prices went all the way to zero last year, briefly, and into negative territory, again, briefly, um, they are back now to levels that make uh, many of the green energy um, more uh, on a par, as far as uh, if, if crude oil was hanging at $20 a barrel, uh, where it was a year ago when everything was shut down, that's not good for solar, wind, or um, lithium-ion batteries um, from a competitive standpoint, because the that fossil fuel would be so much cheaper. But now that we've got it, you know, just ahead of Earth Day, um, back up into the 62 to 64 range for U.S. Uh, West Texas Intermediate WTI, uh, more or less, that's a good thing uh, for uh, these alternatives, these green energy. Uh, producers again, solar, wind, batteries, um, much more in demand when crude oil is in the 60s where it is. Now, Ryan, you were just uh, a year ago, just over a year ago. One of the last trips you probably made was over to Paris um, prior to uh, the shutdown. Uh, I was over in, uh, I think, uh, Switzerland skiing, but you went over to Paris for a clean energy confab. Um, with a whole bunch of uh, uh, folks from around the world to talk about clean energy and best practices and so forth, I imagine. Um, which other countries are really kind of following along and it, at least if not following your lead, moving in the same direction as you and American Battery? Right, that conference in Paris was, you know, it was a workshop for the International Energy Agency. It was really right off right after you know, COP25, after the global Madrid conference, where world leaders were coming together to hopefully agree on a path forward to really make substantial changes. And there were some you know, disappointing outcomes where there really wasn't much um, done coming out of that conference. So this workshop, you know, many global leaders from the technology side were called to essentially say, how can we better frame this as a technology solution to our global political leaders to really enable them to help move forward. And we've been working for the past year to put together these options really in preparation of you know, COP26 in Glasgow just this fall. So we're, we're still working to really try to set these options together to help inform the political leaders to be able to formalize many of these procedures going forward. But your, your question about what countries um, are moving forward. I mean, many in Europe obviously are outright banning the sale of new combustion vehicles in the not too distant future. In the US, many states are doing it. Just a few days ago, Washington state made probably the biggest claim. They're saying by 2030, they're trying to ban the sale of new combustion vehicles. So your point about you know, oil prices definitely are a factor. They are a short-term competitor, but if combustion vehicles are being legislated as a non-option, that removes the oil price as a real factor in this. And I think even just at the consumer level, 
many people just aren't considering combustion vehicles anymore when they go shopping. Many people who own an electric vehicle are saying, you know, I'll never go back to a combustion vehicle. So that's a little bit of a different economic situation, not strictly supply and demand, but there really is this paradigm shift. Um, many governments, many individuals, many businesses just aren't considering, you know, combustion vehicles as a path forward anymore. Um, and obviously the, the new administration um, is hugely supportive of green energy. Um, you couldn't really have much of a better friend in the White House right now than President Biden, who's really been making this one of the cornerstones of what he'd like to leave as a legacy is green energy. Uh, the fact that it's being pushed now in a significant way from the top means that uh, all the agencies uh, that answer to the president are all pushing you guys and trying to incent you, um, American Bat Battery and Metals, QuantumScape, any of the folks uh, in the charge point space or anywhere else to find out what they need to do to uh, uh, encourage even more development in that space. Uh, would you say that uh, you guys are in contact pretty regularly with not just the DOE, but perhaps um, other branches of the government that are really trying to make sure that uh, things that you guys need would be provided for going forward? Yes, the, the new federal administration really does prioritize this. It's much more than just lip service. And even beyond you know, renewable energy as a top level umbrella, they very quickly identified that the supply chain of battery metals is a limiting factor to further manufacturing in the US. They understand that it increases cost for domestic manufacturers. They understand that it is a national security risk to not have access to our own battery metals. And they understand it's an environmental risk. You know, For importing materials that have a large environmental footprint, it negates many of the benefits. So yes, we have many contacts in the Department of Energy. Uh, we've been working very closely with the DOE, the Critical Materials Institute out of Ames, Iowa. They're an energy innovation hub that's really tasked with leading the development of first of kind technologies for how to extract these critical materials and then how to ramp them up to support the domestic uh, supply chain. And just you know, two months ago, they, they've asked me to join their technical advisory board as part of the CMI. So we get to work with them very closely, both on the outward facing programs and on setting their behind the scenes agendas. The Department of State has reached out many times, really working to take extraction technologies we develop here and decide how to best share them with our allies and to ramp up production globally. And again, it's, it's a holistic approach, really emphasizing these types of critical materials, which then feed into many other areas. So we're, we're excited to be working with this administration. It, it's not so much funny, but uh, it is uh, interesting, Ryan, that uh, you know Elon Musk had famously um, said that he would share as much of the uh, technology as he could um, with others, uh, even though some of it could be the intellectual property that is of Tesla, 
um, could be something that other leaders might really guard very closely and not want those secrets out. And it sounds like American Battery and Metals has a sim similar sort of ethos to where they want to share, you guys want to share um, the extraction and the closed system and things like that, that you guys are using to get uh, this energy back from those used um, batteries and get it into that black mass and then have that mass turned back into a battery, uh, whether it's for a cell phone or whether it's just down the road from you in Reno, the uh, te Tesla Gigafactory. That's, that's pretty interesting because like I say, in, in my business investments, um, it's not a lot of companies that want to share um, that aggressively as you guys and Tesla seem to be willing to share. Well, as we move from a linear to a circular economy, your customers end up being your clients. You have up and downstream connections. And especially for batteries where, you know, whereas, you know, gasoline or diesel food are consumed when they're used one time, these elemental metals, if done properly, are never consumed. So we really need to be working very closely with the companies in the other portions of this manufacturing supply chain to really enable this type of closed loop circularity. So as we produce the battery metals, you know, we sell them to the refiners, the cathode companies, like the BSFs of the world. They sell their materials to cell manufacturers like the Panasonics, the Samsungs, the LG Chems. They sell theirs to the vehicle OEMs like the Teslas and the GMs. And then that material comes back to us. So what we're seeing is, you know, we've been working with many companies in each of those other three buckets. And these types of relationships are turning much more into alliances and consortia, where if you have one company in each of those four groups, you can essentially own that material indefinitely. You can have your own uh, asset where you are really maintaining that material throughout all of time. So you can't really be putting silos and walls up at the same time you're trying to work and form these alliances with companies in those other three groups. So once you have that full skill set, you know, one company, each of those four groups, you really can have this closed loop supply chain. You can ensure that every step of the process is done in an environmentally sustainable manner. And you can experience significantly lower costs. And maybe most important is your security of supply. If you always know where your products are going and where your feed is coming back from, you can de-risk your operations going forward. And it can really allow you to focus on incremental improvements in your own processes. Well, fantastic, Ryan. I, I look forward to seeing you um, soon down in Florida at uh, some board events. I'm not on the board of um, ABML folks, but I certainly love hearing about the exciting things they're working on. And as I've said, I'm a significant investor in the company and I love what they're doing over at American Battery and Metal. So Chief Technology Officer Ryan Melsert, thank you very much for joining us here today on Compound Interests. Thank you, John. Great speaking with you. Likewise. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.